Hi, welcome to the Freudcast. I'm Matt Barbet. The simplest ideas are usually the best. The same with things just working as you want them to. We transfer fits the bill on both counts, and especially so when people are collaborating through screens away from shared spaces like offices. Damien Bradfield is one of WeTransfer's founders and, in his words, does all its creative stuff. In fact, to quote Damien again, when I asked him prior to recording our chat what he was up for talking about, he said sex, the dark side, depression, art and anything difficult. Keep listening to see which of those topics cropped up. But we began by discussing his recently published book, The Trust Manifesto, which sets out what Damien thinks we all need to do to create a better internet. By taking responsibility for it individually, I think it's a really interesting conversation happening actually right now around a lot of brands deciding that they're going to, um, in the middle of uh, an era where marketing spend is low anyway because it's the holiday months, and um, you know post sort of COVID nineteen lockdown, we're going to now decide to boycott Facebook. I think it's quite quite hilarious. Um, it will have zero difference. It will make zero difference. Sorry, as Zuckerberg, you know, clearly pointed out, um, he expects all advertisers will return. Ninety um, percent of all Facebook income comes from small businesses, and the fact that you know Microsoft or WeTransfer or Coca-Cola or whatever might boycott Facebook really will, will make zero difference at all. What would make a massive difference would be if everybody grouped together and decided they were going to leave Facebook and ask their customers to do the same thing and put energy against getting their customers to do it. And more importantly, asking regulators to get involved to you know, make some changes to the way that political advertising is, uh, is permitted online or the way that you know, any advertising is regulated or permitted online. Um, but we don't do that. For some reason, we decide that um, you know, although you and I are paying for Facebook, we have this love-hate relationship with it where we'll just sort of tolerate it and continually continually go back because there isn't an alternative. There never will be an, altern- an alternative unless we do something about it. So it's down to you and me. I think that's where you know, a lot of my sort of time and thinking went into in, in, the, in the book that, that I brought out last year was really all around, you know, this fact that it's, a, it's our responsibility, yours and mine, Matt, and we need to change it. Um, and we can do that very simply just by changing the way that we live and behave online. Let's explore that idea of alternatives a little bit, Damien, because the first thing that springs to mind right now is Parler cropping up as a as an alternative to Twitter, but obviously slightly, it seems to be slightly more right-wing leaning. We are in unprecedented times. We're in uncharted waters in terms of the growth of these huge companies that are online. And who's to say they might not be overtaken by something bigger and better and, and disappear just as quickly as they arrived? Well, that's the hope, right? I don't think um, there was a moment when Elon Musk announced to the world that he was leaving Facebook and he'd had enough of it, you know, and he was just going to quit it and pull everything for Tesla and himself personally away. And I thought, yeah, this is exactly what we need to do. Everyone should just throw down tools. But at least through you know my lens, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Reddit, and whatever it is uh, that we created, are are huge cities, right? If we if we look at it from a you know physical standpoint, these are massive cityscapes that we've created, where you know thousands, millions, hundreds of millions of people you know commute 
live, breathe, work, shop, you know, whatever, it all takes place in these spaces. And we created this. And the idea of just suddenly, you know, blowing it up or pulling it to the ground seems illogical. I think we put a, we put a lot of energy into building these things up. If these are, you know, institutions or um, cityscapes that are going to be around for a while, why don't we just regulate them? Why don't we, you know, create neighborhood watch schemes and, um, you know, put in the right sort of checks and measures as we did in the physical world to the to the online world? And and rather than trying to blow it all up or anything, just um, pause and work out what we want from it and what we expect and, and, and try and put those things in place ourselves. I don't think that these, I don't think they're going to go away. I don't, I really, really don't believe that they, they're going to go away. Um, but I do think um, if they aren't regulated, I think we will continue to have you know, uh, the problems that we're having today. And you can see how it's grown in that way because, you know, when the internet started to become more of a tangible thing, if, tan if that's the right use of the word tangible, you can't touch it obviously but a more a more understood thing and i guess in the sort of early to mid 90s uh, and you and i are of similar age in our sort of early to mid 40s so we we recognize that if, if we can, if i can sort of stretch your analogy it was a group of villages i remember going on yeah. something called geo cities and building a building a site on mm -hmm. geo cities and they actually did use that analogy they put you in a neighborhood and you know if you were arty you'd be in like pacific heights or whatever if you were you know doing something musical you'd be somewhere else and people try to organize it in that way. But it, what's, it, I guess the question is, when did it start to go wrong? When did these, when did these villages start to, start to um, spill over the boundaries and start building on the green belt and become, you know, just mega cities that spread for miles? Uh, the moment that serious venture capital money got involved. So the minute that, you know, you were able to raise, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, billions of dollars even, and put them into these, you know, huge corporations. The the entire game changed. You know, everybody who puts money into a business is expecting to get money back out again. And you know, the multipliers that they're looking to get out are, you know, ten, twenty, fifty, hundred times. To get that sort of multiplier out of a business, you've got to grow at phenomenal pace. And you know, it really was a land grab. Right. I mean, if you can go back to your, your GeoCities example, back then you could buy any URL you wanted. I remember buying up, you know, literally we had hundreds of domain names because we thought this was quite cool, you know, to own DamienBradfield.com, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, one of those stupid names that we bought that we thought. A friend of mine was really excited about this name, Doodlescape. He, he, he would always talk about how this was going to be, you know, the website. Because he had this fantastic URL that he was able to purchase. Well, you try and find a .com domain name that that hasn't been bought by somebody already. It's pretty much impossible, right? So we're now buying .web or .open or .design or something else. It's all it's all been bought up. Everything has been everything's been taken. The you know your uh, there are very few users now that are not connected to uh, you know to to cable or to um, to physical Wi-Fi. Um, so so what do we do? How do we how do we reach out to more people? Well, we've got to try and get them through mobile and through 5G devices and and, and go after markets like India and Africa that um, you know are less developed than um, than Western Europe, for example. Um, but it really was the VCs that came in that pumped in so much cash that suddenly changed the 
change the pace of development on the you know on on the web um and that's why i think it's become um it's become a little bit murky um you know without that injection of capital it might well have continued to grow in the way that tim berners lee had sort of first imagined i think of of the web in a little bit more of a hobbyist uh, approach but certainly one which feels to me was you know if i if i take that physical analogy again you know a, a much friendlier city to live in than what we have right now i feel like what we have right now is a, you know a shopping mall next to shopping mall next to shopping mall and i don't know how many westfields we need in the world i think most people would prefer to go to a really well established high street that's full of you know independent vendors and some of the major suppliers but you know independent vendors major suppliers uh, market stalls um you know food stands all that sort of stuff with live music and uh, buskers and uh, uh you know whatever else going in and around it that's a much more interesting place to to live and work um but we haven't we haven't allowed that to breathe any longer it's all been bought up are you optimistic that that sort of richness of experience could come back and also what can we transfer do which is obviously the business that, that you work in that um that you're a co-founder of i mean what can you do as well in terms of improving that experience maybe democratizing it so going right back to your very first question you know who 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 can make a difference here and what do we you know who's responsible what can we do it's it really i really feel it's down to you and me you know we we need to look at it we need to look at the internet in the same way that we look at the offline world and question what information we're giving away who we're giving our time and money to which sort of services we're using and just take a little bit more time now the thing that the internet's been really good at is absorbing our time and absorbing our attention so when i, I think you know i speak for myself here too if i'm shopping online i shop very differently than i do when i'm in the high street Right, I'm shopping online. I'm in a rush. What do I want to do? I want to get to check out as fast as I possibly can. So I often, if I'm on Amazon or you know a service like that, you're not even looking at pricing any longer. You're just basically putting stuff in the cart. You sort of trust that it's the best price because it's the internet, and the goal is to get out as fast as you possibly can. Can you preload your credit card details so you don't even have to go through that? Yeah, check done. Accept terms and conditions. Out of there. Whew. Now I can go away and do something I really enjoy doing. Now, most of us are spending, you know, the pro large proportion of our time online and shopping online is pr predominantly what we're doing. So we just need to slow it down a little bit and be a little bit more cautious and careful and thoughtful about, you know, how we're shopping and who we're shopping with, which companies we trust and uh, which companies we want to give our money to and we want to support in the same way that we do on the high street, I think. A lot of people get quite excited still the notion of going supporting the local vendor or the small co individual coffee shop, you know, and certainly with COVID-19, the idea of being locked down and our local coffee shop disappearing was, you know, something that people were up in arms about and really keen to go and try and support them, even paying upfront, you know, for coffee that they might get three months later to make sure that that coffee shop was still there. Um, we should do the same thing with the internet. Look at those small independent companies, independent shops that have an online store and try and buy through them. And yeah, maybe you don't get it in 24 hours, you get it in 48 hours, but you'll survive. You don't need it that bad, I'm sure. And then what's we transfer doing? So 
I mean, we've always given away 30% of our ad inventory to support causes, arts, photographers, musicians, filmmakers, whatever it is. Um, during lockdown, we, we gave away more than 500 million impressions. So it's the biggest sort of push we've ever done to really support young creatives and artists and, um, and built in functionality that if you saw or discovered work from um, an artist, you could very easily donate money and contribute to um, you know, buying work from them or you know, helping support them in some way. That's part of the sort of our mission is to continue to do that, to try to shine a light on some smaller businesses or smaller practices or smaller artists that you might not otherwise see because, you know, the algorithms are basically serving you up things that um, based on what you previously did, they think you might like. And a lot of the time that means that you know, new stuff isn't very easily uh, discovered. Um, and then I think this sort of conversation, right? I mean, a big part of what we're trying to do is just about just to make people think in my book, that some people criticize me because I didn't necessarily have the solution. You know, what's the solution, Damien? How is the internet going to be improved? I think the, it's so big, right? It's so vast. It's so complex. It's borderless. You know, it's, uh, well, there's so many elements to it that are you know, intangible, as you say, um, that there isn't necessarily a single answer to any of it. The thing that I think is really important is that we ask questions. We question ourselves. We think you know, we, we, we doubt whether or not this is the right thing to do. And that's really important is to make sure that people are spending time, you know, questioning and challenging still and not just mindlessly defaulting to, to you know, the big four. I'm going to chance my arm and ask a very simple question right now. Why is it necessary to have a we transfer in this world? Why can't we just email big files to each other or send them without having someone in between? I don't know, why, why are you chancing yourself with? <laughs> because questioning your business, I suppose. But uh, well, That's okay. I'll permit you that, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to come at the internet afresh, I mean, I was thinking about yeah. the dot-com thing. I mean, you know, the idea yeah. of addresses, it was almost antiquated itself, isn't it? That people fight it over is. a dot-com now, but it still happens, which seems ridiculous in this day and age. It, it also, when you come at it afresh, you think, well, why, why can't I just send this file regardless of the size? If I've got a fast enough connection and I'm online... Yeah. Why Why is it necessary? You're not the first person to ask this question. And certainly in our 10-year history, um, you know, we must have heard and been asked this you know, a, a dozen times a, a year, <laughs> let alone a dozen times in 10 years. We're, in 2012, we were in Google's offices and um, we were sitting there thinking, you know, shit, Google had just increased the file size limit on Gmail and this was going to be the killer. And we were sitting in the offices of the creative labs at the time, um, trying to pitch um, a project to them. And um, we sat there and said, listen, they asked us, who do you think is going to be the, you know, the killer of WeTransfer? And we said, yeah, probably you guys, because Gmail just increases file size limits. How hard is it going to be for people to you know, upload a file and just send it through email? You don't actually need us. And they turned around to us and said, yeah, but Google just doesn't do the user interface part that you do so well. Google isn't that type of you know business that gets the aesthetic nature of the web that you guys have done really well. And we, we did do it really well really early on. You know, the web back in 2010 was not very attractive. And WeTransfer was built in Flash, which wasn't the best you know, functionality for a website and certainly useless in terms of SEO. But it was really good for building out great visual experience and that's what we did really well 
I think that's what's continued with WeTransfer and the different products that we have from, you know, we present to WeTransfer, collect, paper, paste, all these things that we built out of these sort of set of tools today. They all have one thing in common, which is, which is beauty. I think we're, very, we're pretty good at that aesthetic part. And something that we touched on really early on was trust. You know, WeTransfer did a really good job of understanding its role and not overstepping the mark. Our job was simply to get your work from A to B. We saw ourselves as the enabler. WeTransfer is probably one of the few websites in the world where 95% of the UX belongs to somebody else and not us. And all we saw ourselves was as a conduit to uh, you know, a project. You need to get something from here to there and we'll help you support it. And we have beautiful visuals in the background and there are you know, other people's work that we think is uh, interesting for you to, to look at. I think if you understand how to build a brand and you understand what's important in terms of, you know, like delivery in this instance, we could equally have this conversation as to why would Hermes exist today or Louis Vuitton when, you know, you can equally buy a pair of trousers or a shirt or a pair of shoes from ASOS or um, you know, Net-A-Porter. Why do you need to have this fancy store on Bond Street or you know, Fifth Avenue um, with phenomenal overhead and uh, is there going to be a future in it? Yeah, because experience, quality, trust, brand, these are things that are super important to people, to people still to this day, whether you're online or offline. And there are very few companies, I think, online that got that as well as we did, as early on as we did. A big part of, of your, your business model is the advertising side of, of things, of course. Do you think that the way advertising is so prevalent and so fundamental to a lot of online businesses futures has skewed the direction in which the whole shebang the whole internet experience is going yeah totally but it's about to change i mean it's really going to change drastically if you i don't know what browser you use but if you're using safari as default right then ad blocking is pretty much a default setting um if you look at the rise of browsers like Brave and DuckDuckGo and uh, Firefox Focus and all these these other browsers that are um, you know the, appearing on the scene pretty much every month, they're all putting in ad blocking as as default. Um, I don't think if your business is 100% reliant on banner advertising that you're going to be around that much longer in the future, unless you're offering something that's really differentiated and really worth uh, you know people changing their default settings for. So I, I do think the advertising industry online is gonna is gonna change radically, you know, between now and 2022 when Google starts changing its uh, policy around um, cookies and third party tracking. Um, the advertising market will will change and we'll see I think a lot of businesses go out of business um, that just are simply unable to maintain uh, a business that's reliant on banners. I mean, and again, that, that that brings back that question about the size and power of Facebook, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google, Apple. Can you foresee, I mean, we talked about regulation. Can you foresee it going even further in, in that they have to be broken up because there's, they, they can be such such monopolies, especially, you know, especially Google. If that can make such a difference to so many people's livelihoods, yeah, then it's that's an awful lot of power. Yeah, it's huge. They will get broken up. It's only a matter of time. The thing that's 
stopping it or preventing it from happening at the moment is that you know Google and Facebook and Amazon were so far ahead of everybody else that pretty much anybody that was going to do the breaking up is either on the payroll or they've been hired as lobbyists um, and they're on the inside so there's no one really to do the work governments generally around the world are you know years behind um, and they're only just really beginning to wake up to to what's happening we have um, we have a new board member so Martha Lane Fox joins our board as of this month um, as chairman chair lady chairwoman chairperson chair chair <laughs> and she has you know done a phenomenal job I think in helping UK government um, be a lot more aware as to what's happening uh, on the internet and her organization that um, she helped create called dot everyone you know has really been pretty critical I think in the UK at least in helping uh, shape responsible technology and trying to you know create a framework around what what good behavior looks like online is that because enough people don't understand what's under the bonnet you know to, again to talk about how we transfer works and and and, and other businesses because people don't really understand why you can't send to a two gig attachment on, on an email no i think it's because we're in a rush you know if people were really concerned that you know, all, most of their money and time is going towards few corporations that actually do very little good in the world. You know, if you look at how much cash is sitting within those organizations and what could be done with it, um, we should be much more critical of them as to what they do with their cash. But even as publicly listed companies, shareholders are just not that bothered. They'd rather have a dividend than you know, actually reinvest that money into solving the world's water crisis or something. We pay for these companies. It's your time on Facebook that pays for Facebook. So if you don't put any time into Facebook, Facebook won't exist. We choose to continually go back to it, right? We choose to say, to go back and say, yeah, but I, you know, I need to connect with people on Facebook. I need to, you know, have my business on Facebook. If I don't have this on Facebook, I won't be able to survive. I'm always fascinated with uh, the idea of marching. I think it's great that we want to take to the streets and we want to march, and that you know we want to change things. So we do that in the physical world. But actually, you know, to, to really make changes to some of the, the biggest issues of our time, we should leave social media for a period of time. So much of the issue that we have around you know, government in the US, um, hate speech, um, a lot of the issues that we're seeing with racism, you know, are boiled up because of online communities that are allowed to uh, exist because of companies like you know, Facebook. If we really wanted to change it, we should just leave Facebook alone as opposed to going and marching and putting our pictures of ourselves marching on Facebook for the algorithms to churn the information up and serve it back to you again. It does not make sense. We can change this. Only us. You and me, Matt. We're almost out of time, and I appreciate you you uh, giving me yours, but it would be remiss not to ask a couple more questions, perhaps more on the personal side, on you know what what the life is like, the experience has been like in working in this world, in being at the sort of uh, frontier of, you know, internet growth, certainly the past 10 years in your case. Has it been exciting? Has it been scary? What's the, what are the sort of biggest lessons, I guess, that you've learned? Although that's probably prompting a whole other forecast episode with asking that kind of question. <laughs> the company started at the end of the last recession. So, you know, a lot of people now are saying, 
this is this is terrible. We're heading into one of the world's biggest recessions. Um, what does this mean? I think for creativity, I think uh, a recession is is not necessarily always a bad thing, and it can mean that you know we we have a moment to to rethink and to reconsider what it is that we're going to do, and to you know reconsider existing structures and existing ways of operating. We started the company in the Netherlands, and one of the greatest frustrations that we had at the time was that we couldn't get in front of Silicon Valley to get people in Silicon Valley to look at what we were doing with WeTransfer because we thought it was cool and it was going to go somewhere, but we didn't feel like other people were sharing the same enthusiasm. Um, and ultimately, what I'm talking about is we were looking for investment because you know one of the symbols of a good, successful technology business is that you manage to raise seed money. Series A, Series B, and you you know you push up towards a billion dollar valuation. And once you're at a billion dollar valuation, then you get press coverage in the New York Times, and you know you'll be on Kara Swisher's podcast and all that sort of stuff. That was sort of our you know our our aspiration was to to get those milestones in place. The thing was though, we were based in the Netherlands, and it's not the sexiest place to have a technology company in the eyes of Silicon Valley. Um, and we had a business when everyone else was doing programmatic advertising, we were doing these massive wallpapers. Um, when everyone else was gathering tons of data, we barely had any. Um, you know, when everyone else was basically trying to get into, uh, you know, building huge engineering teams, we were focused on design. So everything that basically was interesting for Silicon Valley and anyone in tech, uh, we were doing the opposite of. So there was frustration for us at one point that we were doing these things that we thought were cool, but no one else was recognizing. Um, but gradually over time, what, what began to become clear was that all the things that we'd actually been doing were just the right things. It wasn't you know, necessarily uh, groundbreaking or incredibly complex technology. It was, they, were just, they were the right things because you know, 60 million people using our service was proof that it obviously worked. The fact that an investment banker didn't want to, you know, write a check for a million dollars isn't proof that what you're doing is good or bad. Um, these guys are often, you know, not the arbiters of taste and style and uh, and, and, and success. Um, they're, they're looking at historical data and based on what they've seen previously, they're going to make a judgment as to what might happen going forwards. There are very few people out there really willing to take a risk on something that's different. And in the time that we've been doing this, you know, what I'm really proud of is that there's a couple of moments that we hit where suddenly it became clear to us that the decisions that we've made that we sort of fought for and we had to bootstrap the business and, you know, we didn't always have easy years. We often had to put our own money in and, uh, and not pay salaries and stuff to make it work. But when Cambridge Analytica happened and Donald Trump got inaugurated and people started questioning, you know, fake news and and worrying about who they should trust on the internet and worrying about um, you know where their data was going and you know who was good and who was bad i am so proud of the decisions that we made that make we transfer what it is today and i think for a lot of companies you know it's um we recently became a b corporation you know we're in a group i think that um has a good understanding of what good business is and I'm really, you know, excited about that part in, in, in helping other companies uh, grow and, and, and thrive as good businesses, businesses that are able to help offer, you know, 
good long-term benefits to employees that have uh, you know enough cash in the bank to be able to weather a storm that are able to you know support industry and support causes like homelessness and gun reform and a lot of the things that we've done and you know not have to work 24 7 and you know burn the candle at both ends in order to to keep investors happy i think that's a really quite a major achievement for this little dutch startup final question damien because when we were when we were setting up this interview i sort of said what do you want to talk about and you said you talk about sex the dark side depression art or anything <laughs> difficult so last question you've got free reign to talk about any one of those topics go for it oh my god Oh, so art is good, right? So I think people, you know, a lot of people read my book and went, oh my God, Damon, this all sounds terrible. It's all doom and gloom. We're fucked. <laughs> the world's going to come to an end. Thanks a lot for ruining my life. Um, what are your thoughts? And I'm like, no, I'm super excited. I know you don't understand that because you don't know me, but this is me being optimistic. You should see me on a bad day. Jesus, I'm optimistic that you know the web is, is going to get better. I think we just have to do some heavy lifting. Um, in COVID, during the lockdown, you know, I found the first two weeks really hard. I didn't enjoy it for a second. I found it really hard not working in an office, not having people around. Um, I didn't really have a, you know, sort of work-life balance anymore. It all just blurred into one massive Zoom call. Um, and uh, I have to say, I didn't enjoy it at all. The last two or three months of it, I've actually got into a bit of a routine. And what's been really exciting is seeing artists emerge and uh, when I say artists, I mean, you know, people that are able to work on their own and, you know, create, film, uh, record, write without any tools, um, you know, or 20 producers or, you know, facilities to, to enhance. They're just able to do it, you know, on their, on their own. And um, the lockdown, right, was a real test for who's got those skills and who's able to do that and who, who, who hasn't and who can't. And uh, we've seen some phenomenal people coming through the last couple of months, which have thrived in that, um, you know, cons this, this sort of box of constraints. And I think, you know, we might not see it in the next two or three months, but I think over the course of the next year or so, I think we're going to see some phenomenal work um, from the real artists, right? Those that were really able to, um, to, to, to think and to not get distracted and to do things on their own. That I'm really excited about. I think we'll, you know, unfortunately we might see the death of, of, of a few institutions or uh, places that, that were mediocre, to be honest. Um, and I'm excited that, you know, like uh, Worldwide FM, the radio station that we're involved in with Giles Peterson, you know, I've seen him thrive in this period, like really take on responsibility of being um you know the the sort of the voice of the nation almost on the radio and bringing you you know live music um voice jazz you name it whatever from all over the place um through through the medium of radio again which i think um wasn't really having its day but it's it's come back because it's it takes artists to to be able to operate in those on on, on the in those mediums or um in that space let's end on art because i think it's going to be quite exciting in the next year or so to see what emerges post covid19 thanks a lot to damien and thanks to you for listening keep across what freud is up to by visiting freuds.com you can find us on linkedin and instagram as well
Bye for now. <laughs>